get in, but I want to, I told you I wanted to give you an opportunity to ask questions, so I want to begin with that, but we're going to pray first, and then we're going to, we're going to jump into it this morning. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for the promise of mercies that are new every morning, and even on the mornings when we fail to recognize them because we're myopic, I pray that you would reinforce to us that your mercies are new every morning because your faithfulness is so great. And um, we're grateful that we have a faithful Heavenly Father that we can turn to, especially as we consider and contemplate being parents, Lord. It's a, it's a hard calling, but it's not a calling that, that you have not enabled us to do because of what you have given to us in the Word and with the Spirit that dwells within us. And so as we consider this morning giving grace to our children and how we apply grace to their hearts. Give us understanding, give us a, a, renewed, um, a renewed vision of the grace that you give to us as a Heavenly Father, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, your questions. Told you we were going to begin with your questions. If you have them, let's go. Let's roll. Yes, Colin. Okay, the question is, how do you demonstrate mercy and grace to your children without being inconsistent? Which is a great question because we have, we, we have to be careful what we call mercy and grace. Mercy and grace isn't just like, oh, giving them the benefit of the doubt. It's, it's, it's um, let's consider first, what are the two terms? What is mercy? What is mercy? When God gives us mercy, what is that? He's not giving to us what? He's not giving to us what we deserve. So is it possible to give to your children what they do not deserve? To not give to them what they deserve? Is it possible to do that? Is it possible to do that in a God-honoring way? I think it is. I think, I think but, but to do that, again, it, it kind of the same theme that I've told us over and over, parenting's inconvenient, you don't just give your child a pass without explaining the, what you're giving them, okay? And then if you explain, uh, little Colin Jr., you know, <laughs> you, you, you know, did you disobey? Yeah, it's a scary thought. Did you disobey, did you disobey daddy? Yes. What did I tell you was going to happen? And they repeat it back to you, um, and if they don't know it, you tell them, you know, I don't know, I don't know, I forget. Um, you, you, you tell them what the consequence was, and do you remember that we had talked about that? Yes. Well, I'm not going to give you the consequence, and here's why, okay? But understand this, the next time you do it, you will get the consequence, okay? And you can, as your children get older, you can explain what mercy is, Okay? Um, it's a good way actually to display to your children what mercy is, okay? Does God always crush you immediately in your sin? No, no. So, so I think you, you, can, you, you have to be discerning in that. If you're in a season of parenting where your child is constantly pressing the limits, that's not the time to give them mercy, is it? If, this, if, it's if your child is, is disobeying in a way that, that you have not seen, you know, in quite a while or something, but something happens, that's the time possibly to give them mercy and give them grace and to step in and say, this is what I told you I was going to do, but because I haven't seen you do this for quite a while, I'm not going to do it, but understand if you do it again, it's going to happen. Does that answer your question? Any follow-up on that question? Okay, other questions? So let me try to frame the question so that it applies to, how many of you have children who are at different age levels and you've given them different levels of responsibility? And, they, and they, the younger ones want the older, the older ones what they have in terms of responsibility or privilege, right? Um, 
How do you negotiate that? Well, one, you said it already, every child is different. Every child is different. There are you, some of you have children that when they were probably 10 years old, you could have given them responsibility that you wouldn't even give a 16-year-old in your house right now. Am, you understand that? So, so you have to know your child well, and, and you have to explain to them that when you hand out privileges, those are based on the fact that, that you're giving them something that you believe that they've demonstrated that they can be responsible with, okay? And so, and so you, have to, you have to, again, parenting is inconvenient. <laughs> you have to be a good evaluator of your children. And the, the last thing you need to do is to base whether you're giving responsibilities or privileges to your child based on what other parents are doing. Okay, and and kids, they they know how to use that to their advantage, right? They know how to use that to their advantage. Okay, the biggest one probably is is, and we're gonna we're gonna probably spend a whole session on this later on. The biggest one is probably the use of cell phones and apps on cell phones. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right, kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, here's the thing that I would just say to you. There are certain apps that should absolutely be off limits to your kids. I don't care how old they are. Okay? And you need to do your research and figure that out. Okay? But there are certain apps that your kids should never touch. Okay? And so you need to figure that out, what they are. If you want to ask me privately, I'll tell you my opinion on that. I've gotten in trouble talking publicly about it, like bashing TikTok, which I think is terrible, which I just did it right there. <laughs> <laughs> but but the, you, and it's, it's, it's a two-way street. All it takes is one time for your kid to give in to a temptation, and it can devastate them. And, and since we're on the social media thing, one of the things that, that you to, as a parent need to explain to your children is you cannot erase a digital footprint. You cannot erase it. And so what that means is the stupid mistakes that they make in their teen years with social media will never go away. Why do you think Google and Facebook and now Amazon are spending huge dollars right down the road? What are they doing with those buildings? Do you know what they're doing with those buildings? They are storing every bit of data that you put and that your kids put on the internet. So the only way to get rid of it is to torch all those buildings, which probably isn't a good idea, <laughs> right? And so our kids need to have that explained to them. And, and I would never hand out, I would never hand out privileges on social media without me, one, having full access to their phone at any time. Two, their phone gets parked at night in your bedroom when they go to bed until they can demonstrate that they can tr be trustworthy with it. Three, you better know every password, and if you get on their phone and you can't get onto their account, then that's gone, done, phone's yours. There's a huge sexual opponent that goes, component. Uh, How proactive should you be with a subject of sex? Okay, just I'll come to that. Miranda, did I answer your question? It is a battle. It is a battle. And he'll find, he'll find good kids that are respectable kids who have far more social media presence than he does, and he will offer those up as Exhibit A to you every time. 
And even solid Christ-following families have kids who give in to temptation and do really bad things on the internet. Just tell her that girls are just much more trustworthy until, and boys aren't trustworthy until they're like 34, because that's true. Um, anyway, <laughs> um, so the sexual component, this is a great question. So when do you start talking to your kids about sex? When does the world start talking to your kids about sex? Huh? When does the world start talking to your kids about sex? If your kids are in public school, they're getting it in elementary in their health classes. Am I right? I got some elementary, am I right? In some form or fashion, they're hearing it, right? On the bus, they're hearing it. They're hearing it, they're hearing it, you know, from their buddies, um, you know, it's, it's safe to assume that if you see a bunch of boys hanging around a phone and they're looking at it like this, that it's probably not, you know, the latest Kobe Bryant or, you know, whatever video or shoe that he's dropped or whatever. Even though he's dead, he's still dropping new shoes. How does that work? But, okay. So how do you know this? There's this huge, and, and it's a tool of the devil, okay? And it just makes it readily available, Right? Uh, you know, when I was a kid, you had to consciously go and find out where your parents' friends hid their dirty magazines. And I'm not trying to be disgusting, but that's, that's the way it was. Now, all you have to have is a smartphone, and you can find anything you want, right? Okay. How do you negotiate that? Well, there's a couple ways you can look at it. One, you can just lock it down the whole time that you're in your, they're in your home, and then you send them out in the world, and what have you taught them? Have you prepared them for it? Okay. Two, you can just hand them a phone and say, I'll help you through the whole thing or whatever, right? I think there's a healthier way. You need to be as fathers and mothers together talking about the beauty of sex and God's plan for sex. And what I see couples make the mistake of doing is that's the mom's job. Do you want a woman informing your, and I'm not, being, I'm not being sexist here, but do you really want a woman just informing your son about sex, or do you want a man who has lived through sexual temptation to talk to your son as well? It's both and, isn't it? It's both and. Do you want your son to see how a woman views how men treat her, and how women, do you want, her, do you want a woman to speak into that as well? You do? With your daughters, do you want a father to be very proactive and explain, this is what boys are thinking? Yes, but do you also want a woman to speak into that, and this, is, and this is what God says about how you should value your body and how you should look at yourself? Do you need both and? Hello, do you need both and? If you're not talking to your kids about sex by the time they're 10 years old, you're late in the game. You're really late in the game. But, but we homeschool, we keep them in, we only bring them to church, they never get exposed. Then you, what do you do? Do you put a bag over their head when you drive and so they don't see billboards? I mean, honestly, do you control that they never, when they go into a store, like if you go into a mire, they never see a TV that's on? Or the magazines at the checkout? <laughs> is the world bombarding them with sex? Okay. Is the world going to teach them well about sex? Is the world going to teach them God's design in sex? No. You better be talking about it openly. And here's another thing. If you as a mom and a dad are not openly affectionate, in front of your children, you know what they're going to think about sex and romance? It's a dirty little thing. Dads, the first thing you ought to do in front of your kids when you walk in the door is you should walk by the little kid that's running at you, daddy, 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 you should walk right, you should give them the, the Heisman pose. 
You should walk to where their mother is. You should put your arms around her and plant a big one on her and say, I'm so glad to see you. Why? Why did I say it that way? Why? It sends a mention of importance, and it also says, I value your mother. It's her. She's the one who's important to me. Does that even teach them a little bit about sex? It does. It does. Okay? You need to be teaching your children and talking about, I'm not talking about the, the explicit nuts and bolts at 10 years old. But at 10 years old, most of our young girls are already starting to understand that something is happening with their bodies. Right? And if, and if you're not preparing that talk, and if you're not figuring out how to talk to them, they're going to go try to figure it out somewhere, and they're going to find somebody else who can explain it to them. And, and do you want your kids to find out about sex in the locker room? God forbid. Right? This is Pastor Andy talking, for those of you listening. <laughs> no, go. No, go. I would say this, mom and dad, you have to be in agreement on this and you have to be a team in this. This isn't just one parent's job. This is both of your jobs. This is both of your responsibilities. And I would also say this, that if, that if your plan of defense is to keep them away from it as long as possible, you can't possibly, you can't possibly keep plugging all the holes in the dam. So you got to be proactive with it. You got to be proactive with it. It's, and by the way, it's okay to say to your kids, sex is amazing, it is wonderful when you do it God's way. Sex is devastating if you don't do it God's way. It's okay to say that. Now, they're not going to believe it the first time. They're going to be like, yeah, right, whatever. But you need to keep reinforcing that. Right? Follow up on that. How many, how many of you in here have uh, kids who are 10 years old or older? It's scary, isn't it? It's scary. It really is. It, it's, it, the world wants to teach them just all of what they call the beauty of sex. But it's really quite ugly the way the world wants to teach it. Other questions? Now we've had the sex talk, everybody's clammed up. Okay, nothing else? All right, let's turn to Luke chapter 15. Did you get a handout there back there on the... How easy is it to train your child to be a legalist? Anybody want to answer that? How easy is it to train them to be a legalist? It's real easy. It's real easy, isn't it? You, you can make your child a legalist real quick. In Luke chapter 15, we have this, this long passage of Scripture that can be taken and used in so many directions, but I want to look at it from the direction of parenting this morning. It's the parable of the lost son, or more commonly referred to as the the, the prodigal son, but it falls in a chapter of things that are lost. If you look at the beginning, 15.1, it's about the lost sheep. If you get to verse 8, verses 8 through 10, it's about the lost coin. And now we've got a lost son. Verse 11, and he said, there is a man who had two sons. This is Jesus giving this parable. And, and okay, we need, to, we need to understand something. Look up here. What's the purpose of a parable? What's the purpose of a parable? 
it explains a heavenly, a heavenly truth, a spiritual truth in an earthly manner, and it usually has two results in, the, in, G, in two purposes. When Jesus would use a parable, he used it for two reasons. What were they? To hide truth from people he wanted to hide it from, but was that the sole reason why he spoke that way? He also spoke it to what? Reveal truth, right? Okay? So, so understand this. He's using something that they could relate to, okay? He's using something that they could relate to. This is something that, that was in their everyday common living. It was a part of, 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 of their existence. It was a part of their culture even. So there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me, and he divided his property between them. Understand what that means. We've got to kind of fly through this. The, the younger son comes to the father and he says, I want my inheritance now, basically saying this, I wish you were what, father? I, I wish you had just died so that we didn't have to go through me having to ask for this. But since you haven't, I want, I want my inheritance. And what does the father do? Okay, do you think the father had reservations about doing it? An earthly father here. I realize that the father in this is pictured to be God the father, but think about an earthly father here for a second. Think he had reservations about this? I mean, do you hand your, let's just say he even made it to 20 years old before he asked, do you hand your son 20 year, you know, a, a, a chunk of wealth and say, here, just take it? How many of you would trust your 20 year old son with that chunk of wealth without any guidance? Okay. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. Here we have a Jewish man who is so desperate that he's feeding animals that he's not even allowed to touch and be around, right? Okay? And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise, go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Stop right there. I have a question there on this sheet. What does the attitude of the father reveal about God the father's heart? What do we learn from the, this father in this earthly story that we can, we can apply to God the father? What do we learn about him? What are your observations? Does he have a heart to reconcile? Okay. Notice the father didn't do what a lot of us as earthly dads do when our sons go out and blow in wealth or make stupid decisions. When you're waiting for your son to come home and he's made bad decisions, dads, what are you tempted to do? lecture, I told you so, I knew this was going to happen, if you would have just listened to me. What does the Father do in this? Before words get out of his mouth, before the Son can explain anything, what does the Father do? He goes to him and he gives him a loving expression, does he not? Now, understand this, the, the heavenly father is omniscient, all-knowing, right? But this is an earthly father here that's illustrating the heavenly father. And what, what, what's pictured here, and I know you've had this point out to you before, how does he see him a far way off? How does he know? He's been, he's been wanting him to come home. He's been, a, he's been, he's been looking for him. Does he 
have a heart to rejoice over a change of heart in his son? How, how, how big is he ready to rejoice over a change of heart in his son? Yeah, he throws, he throws this giant party, right? Okay, and this guy's fairly wealthy, and in wealthy families, they kept, they kept certain animals, and they just set them aside, and they're like, you know what, let's keep this calf, this one looks like pretty, this is a chunker right here, and let's keep chunking this calf up, and whenever we have a reason to party, this is going to be the one we're going to use, right? And so, <coughs> excuse me. This son who had wished that his father was dead now has a change of heart. There's been this, this work in his heart. He comes back, and this father is ready to throw this party for him. Okay? He's rejoicing over heart change. Now, what does that tell us about our parenting? How is God the Father modeling parenting to us? Let me ask it this way. What gets you more excited? Compliant obedience or whenever your disobedient child suddenly has a heart change? What gets you more excited? Because we have a compliant, obedient kid, don't we? We have a compliant, obedient kid. We haven't even got to him. But when was the last time you really got excited when you saw a heart change in your kid? Or did you go, it's about time. This father is what? What's he doing here? He, he is jazzed over the heart change, isn't he? He's completely excited about it. Okay? And he's ready to restore. In this room, I don't know who you are. Some of you I do know. But in this room, there are several of us in this room who are grudge holders. And we have this attitude. Well, you came back. That's a good first step. Prove it. Anybody like that? Do you see any of that here in the Father? No. You know, it's a genuine expression of love. He, he welcomes him in. He, he, he puts a robe on him, gives him the ring. He, he gives him the, you know, he, he slaughters the fatted calf for this guy. Now, notice the reaction of the older son. Verse 25, now his older son was in the field, and as he came, he drew near the house. He heard music and dancing. And, he, you know, you can imagine this. He's like, wait a minute. What, there was no party scheduled for now. What, why are we having a party? What's going on? And he called one of the servants and asked him what these things meant. And he said, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in to his, his father came out and entreated him. Again, what do you have the father doing? The father is proactive. The father is proactive with the son who has the right heart attitude. And the father is proactive with the son whose heart isn't right. What does that teach you, fathers? What does that teach you, fathers? Come on, verbalize it. Be on the hook for it. What does it teach you, fathers? Dads, you are responsible to, to go and probe your child's hearts. Who spends more time with the kids, though? Who does in our society? Mom does, and we assume that it's mom's job, and, 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 and you know what? It shouldn't be just on the mom to inform the dad, this is the problem that I see in little Junior over here. Dads, you are responsible, and to be responsible, you got to know, okay? And there's a danger in saying that because there's probably a mother in the room who's like, I keep telling my husband. For every time you tell your husband, you better spend four, more, more, four times more than that in prayer to the Father that he'll change your husband's heart. Okay? And what does the Father do? Notice, notice I love that in verse 28. He entreated him. What does that convey to you? Did he berate him? Like, 
you self-righteous boy. What does it mean to entreat? Do you know what it means to entreat? Some of you are geeking up on your Bible software right now, looking it up. What's that mean in the Greek? What's that mean in the Greek? What's it mean? I'm not looking at you. I'm not, no, no, no. And he's like, it's not me. It's not me. And in English, it means to beg. And it's a pretty good, it's a pretty good translation of the Greek idea here. He, he, is, he is coming and he is drawing him in. Which tells me this, the father himself must not be very self-righteous because you know what self-righteous people do when they see other self-righteous actions? They try to crush it, right? They try to crush self-righteousness because it's a, it's a problem that they can easily recognize here. But notice how he tries to justify himself. He answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. What's it all about? We don't have to go any further. We just read one sentence. What's it all about with the older son? What did the older son catch all of his life? What did he learn or what, was, what, did, he, what did he think was most important? Doing, right? It's the things that I do. It, look what I have done. Look what your younger son did. Look what I've done. Sometimes we don't even have to parent it into our children. Our children naturally can be really good legalists. The older son in this parable is proof of it. What does the attitude of the older brother not reveal about him but reveal about many of us? What does it reveal? What's it teach us about ourselves? Come on, if you say it, it's not going to be like, you know. What is it? What's it reveal about us? There's fleshly desires. What else does it reveal about us? We're always looking to justify ourselves, right? We're always looking to justify ourselves. Okay? And it also reveals that many of us believe that we're owed something. Isn't, it, doesn't this guy believe he's owed something here? Hey, I was the one who did it the right way. And actually, you're spending my inheritance to take care of him. Isn't he? Did the younger son get his inheritance? Does he really deserve to have any more money spent on him? What kind, of, what kind of parent do you think the older, older brother would be? Hmm? He would definitely be a legalist, wouldn't he? Would he be performance-based? Chances are, would his kids, would he raise them so that they, they were raised with this idea, you have to earn my affection? Daddy doesn't like it when you do that. You're making daddy very sad. What does that convey to our children? I got to be good enough to get daddy's love. How many of you are good enough to get the heavenly father's love? Anybody in this room good enough to get the heavenly father's love? Then why do we expect our kids to be good enough to get our love? You know, the number one way to raise a legalistic child is to parent them with the attitude that you got to perform to earn my love. Is it easy to fall into that trap, though? Because, let's be honest, it gets results in the short term, doesn't it? Legalistic parenting, you can, I guarantee you, because many of us have done it, I used to do it, many of you are doing it right today. Before you came in the doors today, you were tempted to be legalistic with your children. Why? Because none of us wants to be embarrassed this morning by our children. Imagine the horror. Who's teaching children's church today? Matt is. Imagine the horror that at 11.45, Matt Sides is so upset, he calls whoever's on security and says, watch this room, and he comes down and he walks into the auditorium, and I'm just going to use Casey and Ashley because they sit right here, and he walks up to Casey, and, he, and he, Matt's kind of a big presence anyway, right, Matt? And he taps Casey on the shoulder and is like, would you be embarrassed, Casey? 
Probably, I would be. <laughs> yeah. And by the time you made it down to the children's church room, if you're like 95% of the fathers, what are you thinking? I don't know if it's Bo or it's Theo, but they're going to die. <laughs> what goes into that thinking? I hope I'm not a prophet, by the way, if I am. <laughs> Matt, Matt, s send somebody else, okay? <laughs> but, but do you get that scenario? What causes the embarrassment? Pride. Absolutely. Because the truth of the matter is, on any given Sunday, whoever's teaching children's church could come down for about four or five of, my ki or of our kids, right, Matt? On a good day, right? If we sent a note home every Wednesday night for kids who acted up in Awana, we would run out of paper. We would, okay? If we're not careful, parental discipline will reinforce an innate legalism. And many of our kids, the legalism's already there, and all we're doing is just reinforcing it. And, and, and when we do that is, is we, we kind of train our kids to think this way, that their good behavior earns our love and acceptance. And what we communicate is, is that if they change their behavior, that we will accept them. And I am carefully using the word accept, because, because we're modeling God here. And, and too often we use the idea of we have to accept Christ as Savior. Burn that, burn that phrase in your heart. Do we have to accept Him or does God accept us? Actually, the old King James word in Ephesians 1, I think at verse 6, says that we are accepted in the beloved. I think the ESV translated blessed in the beloved. But, but the idea, who, who has to do the accepting? God does, right? God accepts us. And so, I want you to write this down because I want you to let this sink in. The truth is that you are always influencing your child's heart. The question is how? Write that down. The truth is you are always influencing your child's heart. The real question is how are you influencing your child's heart? Is that a true statement? You're always exerting influence on your children's hearts. And so the question is how am I going to do that? So let's, let's, re, let's relook at these three terms again that we have talked about. And I make a statement, grace takes sin more seriously than legalism or license. And I think that sometimes we view grace, and I think even in Colin, your question is so helpful, because we, we interpret grace and mercy as sometimes like as a weakness, or, or we're, we're being too light on sin. It's a misunderstanding of what grace is. And let me, let me help us to understand that. Legalism says this, I can overcome my sin with my own effort. Which one of the boys in the, in the parable of the lost son, which one of them was the legalist? Which one was? That's not a hard question. Why was the older son the legalist? What was he trying to justify himself to the father with? All these years I've served you. I never asked for my inheritance. I never, I never gave you an ounce of trouble. That's typical older child behavior anyway, isn't it? The older child is always like, I'm the responsible one. Right? How many of you are older children in this room? How many of you are that way? <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's just natural. It's just innate. You have, you have taken more responsibility as you have grown up. It's been sometimes forced upon you. Sometimes you've just willingly taken it. And, and so in your mind, you're like, I'm the responsible one. And look at these other derelicts that you have raised, father and mother. License says this. If legalism says I can overcome sin with my own effort, license says this. Sin really doesn't matter. 
There's a whole movement in the church today, in, in, in especially the Western church, and, and, and some of you have heard this term, it's cheap grace. It's, it's just another way of saying license. And the idea is, is that sin really doesn't matter. Jesus paid it all and I can go out and party. That's the idea here. Jesus paid it all and I can go out and live it up. Grace says this, and I think it would be helpful for you to write this down. Grace says this, that, that son, daughter, your sin matters so much that Jesus had to die in your place. That's what grace says. Sin matters so much that Jesus had to die in your place for that sin. Grace says that you as a parent, grace says that your child needs to be changed into Jesus' image. That's what grace says. There's another example of a kid who needs changed into Jesus' image. Yes. And so, notice what I put down here at the bottom. Grace disciplines our children and points them to forgiveness, one on the cross. You're like, you mean every time I discipline my child, I should be bringing the cross into it? Yeah. Again, parenting is what? It's inconvenient. It's inconvenient. So let's, let's quickly go to the back. I'm going to fly through these and then we'll try to talk about them at the beginning of next time if we need to talk more. So here's some pointers for grace-filled parenting in action. Number one, discipline and then stop. How many of you would be willing to admit that after you discipline, you like to remind over and over and that you're a grudge holder? Is that grace? Is that what God does with us? God does something that you and I are not capable of doing. I understand that. What does God do with our sins? As he removes them as far as the east is from the west, right? God has the ability to not dwell on our sin. But sometimes when your children are real dirtbags, it's really hard to forget, isn't it? Isn't it? It's hard. But here's the thing that I would put next to this. Write this down. No grudges and never humiliate them. Is it true that for every kind word you say to your kids, they will remember the one harsh, humiliating word far more than they'll remember the kind words? Is that true? Yeah, it's true. Number two. Always show acceptance to your child when you discipline them. You're like, that sounds so worldly, but it's not. Again, Ephesians 1, 6, we are accepted in the beloved. Show them that you accept them. And how do you show acceptance to your child when you discipline them? Every time you discipline your child, it should be followed with an act of love. So you got little children, and, and, and you spank them. And you, and you go to all the trouble to not spank them out of anger, and you, you get yourself right, and you deal with the problem. And, and you, if you don't show them love after that, what have you said to them? Mommy's really upset with me, daddy's really upset with me, and I'm going to have to earn their love back now. But if you don't leave it to question, if you demonstrate love to them, guess what they now realize? I don't have to earn their love. It's there. Because let's understand something. Write this down. Discipline is, good discipline is an act of love. Good discipline is an act of love. Are you doing what's best for the child when you're disciplining them? Hopefully you are if you're doing it right. Is that an act of love? Doing what's best for the child, is that loving? Church, is that loving? then discipline then done correctly is an act of love. And it's perfectly fine and it's good to follow that up with a demonstration of love for your child. Does God hold grudges against us? Does God take us to his woodshed and then just leave us there with no expression of love? 
No, he doesn't do that. Thirdly, discipline your own heart. Ask yourself this question. Does the way I, does the way I communicate to my child communicate that my affection for them is based on their behavior? Is it easy to fall into that trap? It's really easy. In fact, I want you this week to evaluate your communication with your children and, and, and catch yourself in ways that you're saying and phrasing things that you're making your affection all about their behavior. Some of you were parented that way and you still feel to this day that you're not loved by your parents because you can't earn their love. Do you want your children to be in that same trap? Fourthly, Absolutely do not use bribery to control your children. Boy, if I'm ever in Kroger and I see you negotiating with your kid about what candy bar they're going to get if they're good, I will call you out in front of the whole store. Do not bribe your children. Do you have to be bribed to go to work? Well, that's what a paycheck is, isn't it? Do you have to be bribed to do the right thing? Is doing the right thing the right thing to do because it's the right thing? Is it? Then why are we teaching our children that the only way that you need to do the right thing and the only time you need to do the right thing is when I buy it for you? Don't bribe your children. Number five, make sure your child knows you discipline them because you love them. And it's not just saying after you have disciplined them, I love you so much. You better be loving them actively before and after and during the time you have to discipline them. Some of you dads in this room think it's awkward or bad to even give your daughters a hug. I want to tell you something, dads. If you're not hugging your daughter, they're going to go find some man in the world to hug them. Even as a teenager. You better be demonstrating your love to your children consistently. Number six, legalism looks down on other people to make you feel good about yourself. Do your children, and this is something I want you to all check your hearts on, do your children hear you criticizing others in front of them? What message does that say to your children? If you're critical of somebody else, maybe you're critical of a coach or a teacher or you're critical of another parent, if your children hear you be critical, what does that say to them? If you're going to be critical of them, you're probably critical of me. And it's okay to be critical. It's okay to be self-righteous and look down on others. You say, but... PD, you don't know how much of a jerk my boss is. Tell your wife privately, don't do it in front of your kids. You don't understand how that coach is hurting this kid and not giving them playing time. Do not reinforce what your child already sees. Number seven, don't, don't, do not. Do you get the imperatives there? Don't compare your child to other children. Anybody brave enough in here to admit that you were compared to other siblings growing up? Compared to other kids, other families whose kids were much better behaved than us? Did that ever happen to you? Don't do it. Don't do it. I wish you were more like so-and-so. I wish our family was more like that family. They're so perfect. Yeah, in the 10 minutes you see them at church in the hallway when they're all lined up so cute. What you don't see is in the car when they're literally pulling each other's hair out, spitting on one another, screaming at one another, right? Don't compare your child to other children. You want to know the number one way you can model grace to your children? Number eight, apologize and seek forgiveness from your child when you don't get it right. Is that a humbling thing to do? And it's not just when you sin against them, it's when you sin in front of them. 
Like when the guy on 161 cuts you off at the New Albany Road entrance and you're like, you know you got to merge, dude, and, and don't, you know, don't do this to me, and you scream at them and call them the biggest idiot in the world, and your child hears that, and your three-year-old in the back seat says, idiot, idiot. <laughs> Where'd they learn that word? Finally, above all, bring your child to the cross. You say, well, what does that look like? Well, in moments of discipline, you talk to them. You know, I know you think that I'm just upset with you because you broke my rule, but here's the thing. In breaking my rule, you're breaking God's rules, and God calls that sin. And, and what did Jesus have to do because of sin? He had to die on a cross, didn't he? So sin's pretty serious. You, you talk about it in times when you're not disciplining it. You say to your kids, ask your kids this question. Do this on the way home today. How important was it that Jesus had to die? Why is the cross so important? Why is it so important that Jesus had to die? And don't settle for the Sunday school answer. Really explore it with them. Why is it so important that Jesus had to die? And don't make it about them, make it about you. You know why it's so important that he had to die? Because daddy, daddy is a very sinful person. And your kids will be like, yeah, you are, dad. <laughs> when you're praying for your meals or when you're praying for them going to bed at night, thank Jesus for dying on the cross. Make the cross a regular part of your vocabulary. Shouldn't it be for a Christian anyway? Shouldn't it be? It should. So, so we don't need to reinvent. It, it ought to be a regular part of our vocabulary, and if it is, it'll be a regular part of our kids' vocabulary too. Okay, I've given you some homework there. We'll come back. We'll hit those points again. Maybe you have some follow-up questions on that. We are, we're at 1025, so I'm going to pray. Father, thank you so much for the cross of Jesus Christ. Thank you that there is grace for all of us who are hopeless, hopelessly trapped in our sins. And, and apart from you intervening, we would remain hopelessly trapped in our sins. So we thank you for the grace of Christ. We thank you for the cross of Christ. Lord, help us to be the kind of parents that make much, not of our rules, but much of the grace of Christ, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.